1958, British fishing boats drifted northwest into the cold Atlantic waters surrounding Iceland, hoping to catch enough fish to satisfy seafood demands back home. There was nothing unusual about this. British and Icelandic boats had been trawling freely in the stretch of ocean between the two countries for hundreds of years, and British fleets had been especially active in the area since the late 19th century. But this year, something was different. Starting in 1952, in response to a widely held feeling that British fishers were depleting local stocks, the government of Iceland began claiming, and eventually enforcing, an exclusive right to fish in the waters off its coastline. Six years later, things came to a head, as British fishing trawlers and Icelandic Coast Guard boats met on the high seas and started ramming into each other. On purpose. This was the start of a decades-long conflict between the two countries that would come to be known as the Cod Wars. During periodic battles over fishing rights that would last from 1958 until 1976, British and Icelandic boats regularly fought by ramming each other's hulls. Meanwhile, Iceland's Coast Guard tried to prevent the British from fishing in the disputed waters by cutting their nets with hawsers. At the height of the conflict, Royal Navy escorts were assigned to fleets of British trawlers to keep them safe from Icelandic attacks. Before the Cod Wars were over, a British fisherman would be severely injured, an Icelandic engineer would be dead, and the laws governing the use of the world's oceans would be changed forever. I'm Miles McDonough, and you're listening to The Free Ranger. Welcome to The Free Ranger a podcast about telling the stories that matter. On this podcast, we'll be learning about storytelling from the people who turn important issues into stories. The writers, filmmakers, marketers, and other professionals who weave together the facts to create compelling narratives that make a difference. In this, our inaugural season, we'll be looking at stories of stewardship, how people create powerful stories about our planet and its natural resources. We are very excited to welcome Tatiana Der Evidician, Head of Business Development at The Economist's World Ocean Initiative. Tatiana is a communications specialist with extensive experience in business development, communications, and business strategy, including roles at both The Guardian and The Spectator. We sat down with Tatiana to learn how she helps The Economist generate films, articles, and other media that cover the important issues facing the ocean today.
All right, Tatiana, thank you very much for joining us here on the Free Ranger podcast. Sure. Hi, Miles, and thank you for inviting me. Tell me what you're up to over at the World Ocean Initiative. So that is um, an economist-led project, um, which is all about how to create a sustainable ocean economy. Um, it was launched in 2018 off the back of the Economist's very successful flagship event, the World Ocean Summit. The idea was to take what was taking place, you know, these high-level discussions that were taking place at the annual summit and turning it into a 24-hour conversation. So utilizing the Economist's um, capabilities as a business um, and disseminate and share um, that information to a much wider audience. So storytelling, really, but in multiple uh, sort of uh, formats. You mentioned uh, the ocean economy. I've also heard you talk about the blue economy in other places. What is the blue economy? So the blue economy, um, much like the way we use the word the green or um, anything else, is, is really any sort of area of of industry that touches upon the ocean or, or relies on the ocean. Um, so, and I'm oversimplifying this, but the, take, for example, industries like the fisheries, shipping, um, the blue energy market, for example, um, those are the sorts of areas, sort of what you would categorize as part of the blue economy. Now, these industries haven't necessarily, don't, haven't always seen themselves as being part of the blue economy. I'd say shipping being one of being a good example of that, but they are now sort of coming to the idea that, you know, that, it, that this concept, that this novel idea exists and um, that they are part of it and therefore um, they have a role to play in that, um, in this blue economy. And when we talk about the ocean economy, we're also talking about the health of our ocean. What is uniquely challenging about telling the story of the blue economy and the ocean economy? Some of the biggest issues is that we don't know much about our ocean. There isn't much investment going into the ocean either. Um, I, I've said this before, but you know, there's a lot of people spending a lot of money trying to figure out uh, space and, and other planets, and yet we don't <laughs> understand our own planet, which is quite ironic, really. Um, but um, you know, that that would be I think one big challenge. The other challenge is that you have certain debates or certain issues that um, take. Um, precedents or prior are prioritized by people or are more known to the public than others and therefore dominate the discussion and, and therefore other issues um, sort of are sitting in the periphery and then people don't necessarily take much notice to them. Um, so for example, of course the plastics issue is a big one and a very critical um, issue, but that also means that you know in the average um, person, may not know much else about what are the biggest challenges, like, for example, um, you know, the actual um, organisms in the ocean, their livelihoods, um, our coral reefs, um, you know, overfishing, illegal fishing, um, illegal activities on the high seas, all sorts of different issues, you know, the, the killings of um, fisher, um, fisheries, um, fishermen and um, observers as well. Oh, what is it do you think that makes certain issues or stories in this ecosystem come to dominate in the conversation, whereas others get uh, forgotten or swept under the rug? N not to, again, I don't want to sort of uh, simplify something and just label it, but I'd say good marketing goes a long way. And 
some issues resonate with um, with us because it's closer to us. We can um, we it, it it affects us individually, and therefore we res the issue sort of resonates with us more. Um, and other times, uh, I mean, yeah, effectively, it's really about how you tell those stories and how you're connecting with people and making them relate to the issues from a first-hand experience. How do you like to get people to relate to a given issue of importance? You know, the best way I, well, and, and I say this through the work that I do um, with my charities, is for them to see the issues firsthand, right? But in the absence of, there are a lot of people that live near the ocean, but there are a lot of people that don't live near the ocean, right? So if you're going to try and um, highlight this, well, you know, maybe it's the garbage on your streets and you see how much garbage is collected. You you notice that your, um, your local council is not recycling materials and um, there's a lot of waste, you know, or you'll see the, your countryside littered with waste, or you actually end up going to the beach somewhere and you see lots of plastic in the, um, on the seashore. And then that might somehow sort of, it, it will annoy you maybe because you don't like the unpleasant look of it. And then somehow you start to say, oh, well, wait a minute. Um, if this is happening just in my little area, imagine what's going on elsewhere. You might then decide to read read something about the issue. You might find out that your um, entire district doesn't do doesn't have a really good recycling policy. Um, I, I mean, again, I think I'd say that yeah, I'll go back to what I originally said, which is I think that firsthand experience of seeing something with your own eyes, experiencing it, then helps you connect with something and maybe take the issue a bit more to heart. So we've talked a lot about storytelling, uh, which I think a lot of people can pretty easily relate to some of the videos that The Economist puts out, obviously the articles, the journalism. But in addition to your skills as a writer, you've done a lot in partnership management and business development. In fact, that's your role at The Economist, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, yeah. How do you use your skills in partnership management and business development to help the economists tell this story, to get the word out about the blue economy and important issues within it? So that's a good question. We, so, you know, um, part of my work is, you know, obviously as head of business development is to find, uh, so we go out and we sort of, we know what are the core issues that we want to talk about are, but of course that doesn't always connect with what um, our clients want to talk about. Um, so we have to go and find a happy medium, but it's about finding like-minded organizations that um, understand and are somewhat aligned with the values of The Economist. So, you know, The Economist does care about democracy. It cares about freedom. It cares about the free market. Um, you know, we are, we, we are um, um, we're very supportive of the sustainable development goals and the overall sustainable um, development of our, of our planet, um, so, so to speak. So, you know, it's finding the kind of businesses that are aligned with that and, um, you know, giving them ideas of how they can align their brands with these issues and help and fund some of these important um, uh, sort of projects that we're working on. I mean, you know, one example, great example is this new project that my um, colleagues are working on in Japan with the Nippon Foundation. It's called the Back to Blue Initiative. Um, we're developing a plastics management index. Uh, I mean, we are literally bringing together the entire um, ecosystem um, of 
for of anyone and everyone working in the plastic space um, to develop this index. Um, you know, other projects that we've worked on, um, you know, have just ha have had similar impacts. Like, for example, working with the U.S. Department of Energy's National Lab um, PNNL on a um, blue energy report and looking at the potential around that. Sounds like there's a lot of organization involved, a lot of getting people with potentially different points of view to come together around a story and promote it themselves and put their own uh, work into it. Yes, yeah, and and you know, I mean, some right now we're building. So some a lot of these projects could, um, are usually standalone sort of clients working with us to develop something and they get full sort of voice on on the project, um, share a voice, shall I say. Uh, but in other instances, like currently, we're building a coalition, a consortium, so to speak, of different partners on a very important project around ocean data. Um, and that one is, is a lot more challenging because it's not just, you're not dealing with one, you know, one voice, you're dealing with multiple voices, all experts in their own space. Um, but of course, the economist is utilizing its expertise um, to to help you know to help deliver um, this project. It's still under works, um, and hopefully, we'll get all our sort of key partners together. Um, and I will be happy to share that project with you when it's when it's ready. Big question here. Tell me why the ocean? What draws you to this work? Uh, well, not just the ocean. Uh, I just, I mean, I'm, when, when was it? So I was working in 2015 for The Guardian, and that's when the Sustainable Development Goals were initially sort of launched, so to speak. I worked on a number of different projects, uh, women and girls, uh, water and development, um, the broader SDGs, sort of, you know, monitoring and measuring um, the progress of them way back in 2015. The ocean being one big part of it. One of the interesting things is it, it wasn't ever, it never really has been one of the big focus areas. Um, and in fact, when the SDGs launched, one of my biggest um, pain points was how the way in which people were approaching the goals, everybody kind of looked, to, picked a goal or picked three goals and said, okay, as a business or as an organization, these are the three goals that I'm going to focus on, but not really realizing that they're all interlinked, that you have to take a holistic approach to all of these issues, but some get more attention than others. And that's not to say that any of them are more important than the other. Um, we have serious global challenges. We have serious issues around the world. Um, you know, sanitation is one, um, lack of access to energy. Um, you know, there, there's so many different food security is a big issue, but these are all these are all interlinked with each other. How do you balance the need to tell a particular story about a particular issue with the fact of this larger system of problems that you've talked about? I mean, through effectively through storytelling, I mean, it goes back to this thing of you, you've got to connect the dots. You've got to help people understand the issues. And this is, by the way, this is not unique to this. Generally, overall, or generally speaking, we look at issues in silos and we don't always think about the bigger picture, the implications. And this goes into issues around conflict and, and conflict resolution. So you've got like something bubbling here, but you're not sort of understanding the challenges across the region or the other issue that's arising somewhere else. You know, 
500 kilometers away and not seeing the links between the two issues or how one is um, is affecting the other and the implications. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, you can, you can do so much, um, but sometimes I think we don't have the capacity to take in the everything that's going on around us. And so sometimes giving people bite-sized information is a lot easier to digest. So talking about the issue of plastic in the ocean is something that, um, you know, people get, they understand it. Trying to explain why there's plastic in the ocean, what are the challenges? So then you start, it starts to get a little bit more complicated and then some people will just switch off. And, and that's not to say that, um, you know, it's because they're, um, it, it's not a, it, this is not a criticism about the person. It's just that their interest goes only so far. So interest plays a pretty decisive role in figuring out what stories to tell and how to tell them to people. I'd, I'd say yes. Uh, if you had to summarize the World Ocean Initiative's take on the problems facing the ocean today, how would you do that? Well, we don't take a stance, apart from the I fact see. that we want to see its sustainable growth. No, because we, we are effective. I mean, we're a media organization. Our job is to tell the stories. We don't take a particular position on any issues. Um, we are presenting the ideas, the solutions, and it is for the community to then take that upon themselves and, 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 and affect change. Because we, we are not going to implement the change. It's, it's our readers. It's, it's, um, it's the clients that we're working with. These are the actual, um, these are the, the, the facilitators. That's interesting. So there's a very clear division between, I suppose, uh, sharing information and engaging in polemic and uh, trying to convince people of things. Your job is not to uh, sway one way or the other, but to make clear the facts of the situation. Yes, I, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of uh, people in this world who are telling everybody what to think and how to think. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of media organizations do that. So it's nice to work for a media organization that doesn't necessarily um, tell you what to think, but just tells you, gives you the facts and information. Very big question. What is your favorite story? That could be a myth, a fairy tale, something from history. I mean, I, I do love, I do love the stories of the Greek gods. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, actually, my, my friend's little daughter, uh, she's Greek anyway. She, well, yeah, she's Greek. And she was learning about the gods um, through this app. I mean, they don't read books these days. They just have an app. They just tell us all the different gods. And so she was anyway reciting to me all the different gods. And then I was giving her the backstory about each one, you know, what they don't tell you in like five <laughs> sentences. And then her mom was like, what are you, what are you teaching her? And I said, I'm like, it's good for her to know these things. I'm like, they're just giving her the basics. Like she needs to know that Zeus wasn't a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I'm fascinated um, with Greek mythology. I, I find it, um, I, I mean, if you think about it, it's still, it has, it has sort of um, grasped the imagination of so many people. So many films have been made. 
Um, so many sort of storybooks have been inspired poetry. There's so much around it. And then um, I just found it, I just found it all very fascinating. And not just because I grew up in South Africa. <laughs> when you are putting a story together, how do you hook someone? How do you get them interested? It's got to be topical. And you've got to think about the way in which you're presenting something. What you say, how you talk and how you, uh, how you present something is of great importance. It's got to be not unique because there's, there's no standalone unique idea. Every idea is born out of a different, another person's idea or something else. But it, it's, you know, I, I, so I take issue right now with, with film industry. There's a lot of repetitiveness. There's a lot of tired storylines that are just being repackaged and sent out and so on. And it just, you know, if you're just numbing your brain, it's great. But if you're actually trying to engage with something, you want, you want a little bit more meat to it. But how do you make your film distinctive? How does it stand out um, beyond your public, you know, these publicists that spent, you know, and these movie execs spend a lot of money telling you that your their movie's great, mm-hmm. and then you watch it and think that, and then you watch like this amazing like random film that you you know hasn't gotten all the reviews, but is actually unique in the way it's telling that story. But also, I think we're very formulaic sometimes about the way in which we tell stories. We're told that we have to write a certain way, that we have to, you know adapted film into a certain way in order to keep people engaged but actually sometimes doing something a little bit more left field is far more interesting another hard one for you get ready for this one so what is uh you mentioned greek mythology and your fascination with it uh particularly the way that it's inspired so much of our culture so many cultural artifacts what's the difference between merely repeating an idea over and over again in different formats as arguably certain elements of the film industry have done and reinvigorating those stories and telling them in a new way for a new purpose so research we're a bit lazy um we don't (laughs) you have to go and read you have to read about the the characters that were ignored um you need to we we need to reapproach things so for example um, there are certain characters in history. There's a really good book that I read when I many, many years ago for, by um, an author who passed away now, Elizabeth Wurzel. Really, I mean, she was an interesting writer. And she wrote this book called Bitch. And she was retelling the story of certain women in history. So from Delilah to, um, to Amy Fisher to Hillary Clinton and so on. And I read this when I was, gosh, I was like 17 or something. Um, and and it, it left such an impression on me because what you know is based on what you are told. And a lot of people don't necessarily take the time to go and reread something and make up their own mind about something. So maybe you'll find out something completely different about a particular person in history. And you may want to tell that story slightly differently to what that is. And that's, and that's what makes a good film a good film because um, you take a completely different approach. And by the way, you don't always have to stick to historical facts that's something as well that you know a lot of people think oh i have to be exact i have to be exact to history well no you don't because the idea is you take something and then you recreate it with your own imagination with your own interpretation of what you've understood um to have happened during that era 
Is there anything that you would like people to know either about the blue economy, the story you're telling about it, the World Ocean Initiative, anything at all? I'd say get more involved. Um, try to get connected with the ocean, even if you don't live anywhere near it. It's funny because um, we all live very close to an ocean. I mean, even if you don't feel it necessarily. Um, but these things, but you know, everything that you do has a cause, um, has an effect. Um, and we all have to be mindful or aware of our impact. And if we can do that um, I, and, and take more interest in these issues, because at the end of the day, policy is driven by the mood of the people. It's a catch-22, you know, is policy driven by, do we follow policy or, or do we set policy? For those that believe that they have, you know, that people have a strong voice, use it um, because it can affect change in a good way and hold people accountable. That is a lovely note to end on. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Tatiana. And thank you for joining us here on the podcast. No, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this. As Tatiana pointed out, the mood of the people can have a huge impact on policy decisions. That was certainly the case in 1976, when the Cod Wars finally ended. That year, Iceland won international recognition for its claim to exclusive fishing rights in the waters 200 miles off its coastline, a claim that was later codified and applied to all sovereign countries as part of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Such exclusive economic zones, or EEZs, have permanently changed the face of the global fishing industry. While the Cod Wars might seem like a quirky, isolated incident, international disputes over fishing rights are actually far from uncommon. In addition to the Cod Wars, the 20th century saw a lobster war between France and Brazil as well as a turbot war between Canada and Spain. As recently as 2018, French and British ships clashed with one another in the Channel during a brief scallop war. Telling the stories of these conflicts over ocean use is a tricky task. It involves getting a grip on the massive web of interlinked issues that contribute to every dispute over resources, identifying the parts of that web that will make a good narrative, and finding a way to share that story with the people who need to hear it most. No small feat. But as we see in the lasting results of the Cod Wars, doing it well can influence the fate of industries, economies, and nations, and change the very way our world works. This has been The Free Ranger. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with someone else who'd like it too. The Free Ranger is a production of Free Range Studios, a storytelling and innovation agency helping mission-driven organizations promote social good. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at freerange.com. <laughs>